All right, as you can tell from the opening slide here, we're actually studying two books this morning, hopefully. Uh, I think this is the first time this year that we've attempted something like this, and I was looking ahead in the reading plan, and when we get to the three Johns and Jude, we're going to try and tackle all of those in one week. So that seems ambitious to me. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure if we're going to even like be able to explore Titus and Philemon in their entirety. Uh, if I could encourage you, we're really moving through these books quickly here as the year comes to an end. If you've kind of fallen off the tracks, so to speak, with the reading plan, let me encourage you to get back in it. Uh, if you've stuck with us this far, we're almost through the entire New Testament. How awesome is that to say that collectively we have read the New Testament together? We've studied it. So if you're still going, that's awesome. Keep it up. If you've kind of gotten a little off, let me encourage you to get back with it. This really is like the way that we as a leadership team here at Grace have determined that the word of God is too important for us not to be in every day. Uh, we want to be not just hearers, but doers of the word. We want to study it every day, uh, consider how it uh, can speak to our hearts. We need this more than just Wednesdays and Sundays. So please get back with it if you haven't already. We uh, will begin with Titus this morning, and you've heard me say, I think, three weeks now that this is part of the pastoral epistles, uh, of which Titus is the third, first and second Timothy are the first two. Paul is writing these letters to maybe we would say his uh, disciples, people he's been mentoring. These were guys that uh, kind of accompanied him on missionary journeys, uh, maybe early on when Paul was doing that, but now they've been assigned a pastorate of their own. Uh, Timothy in Ephesus and Titus on the island of Crete. I actually have a map here of where Crete is. Uh, you should see some familiar cities on mainland Greece, Philippi, Thessalonica, Corinth, but Crete is that big island in the south of Greece in the Mediterranean there. Uh, I believe it's the biggest island in Greece, uh, something like 160 miles long, so a pretty sizable island. And as you can imagine, uh, an island in the Mediterranean has got to be a pretty awesome spot to be a missionary. Uh, I looked at some pictures of it this week. Sandy beaches, crystal clear water. Like, not a bad assignment for the Apostle Paul to give you from that standpoint. But Titus wasn't there to chill. Titus was there to minister to people. And that kind of brings us to our first question this morning. According to verse 12, what kind of people was Titus ministering to? What's the description of the people of Crete? Yeah, Jeff. <laughs> yes. Liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. How's that for a description of the people that you're told to minister to? Yikes. I was just thinking about it this week. You know, imagine if someone came and said, hey, I need you to babysit these kids at this mansion. It's luxurious. It's got all this stuff. By the way, these kids bite and steal and they scream you're like, oh, the mansion doesn't sound that cool anymore. Well, this is kind of what Titus encountered here. He goes to Crete, whoa, but the people are liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And Paul wasn't just coming up with this description to be dramatic. If you notice verse 12, he is actually quoting a, he says prophet, perhaps a philosopher of Crete, a person of their own people group who makes this uh, uh, characteristic or this description of the people of Crete. This guy was self-aware enough to realize, hey, my people are pretty bad. 
this is what they're like. Um, if you remember, in when we studied Corinthians a couple of months ago, I, I, I made it a point to say that at this time in history, uh, to Corinthianize became synonymous with immorality. Well, similarly, Crete had a adjective about them. Uh, to Cretize became synonymous with lying. There was a Roman uh, in biblical times, a Roman philosopher who said something like, you know, the Cretans' uh, moral compass is so off that they think that highway robbery is honorable. Uh, th these are the kind of people that Titus was assigned to minister to. One of the other challenges that Titus faced in this church was not just the people, but it seems that false teachers had infiltrated the church in Crete. There were people, likely Jewish, who were, uh, Titus says, uh, teaching for shameful gain what they shouldn't. They were disrupting whole families. They were really causing a ruckus, likely saying that there were parts of Judaism that you had to keep in order to come to Christ. Again, this is not something that should be new to us. We're seeing this in a lot of the epistles. There's like a remnant of Jewish people who are always trying to add to the gospel and bring some sort of Jewish component to Christ. And yet we know that salvation is faith alone in Christ alone. And so you can imagine being Titus. This is the assignment you've received from Paul. Sounds just like a crazy place, crazy people. He's probably in over his head. W where, where do you even start? if you're Titus. Well, for Paul, it's pretty easy. He says, hey, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And I think these elders are pretty unique in that if you notice the qualifications that Paul lists of what is expected of the elders, some of them are just in direct contrast to the description of the people of Crete and to the description of these false teachers. Cretans are liars. They're lazy. They're, e they're uh, evil beasts. But the elders... They're blameless, they're holy, they're disciplined. I think one of the functions that these elders serve is that when Titus identifies and appoints these people, all of a sudden it's not one man tasked with putting the island in order, but it is Titus and these other godly men who can link arms and accomplish Paul's purposes together. There's a real camaraderie here, there's a real unity here they can collectively begin to address the problems in the church. And this kind of brings us to our second question here. According to verse 13, what was necessary to provoke the people to be sound in the faith? Joanne. Yes, reproved, rebuke them sharply. You know, Paul has little, little tolerance for the people of Crete at this time. They need a rebuke. But I want us to notice that that is not the end of the verse. Look at verse 13 with me. He says, therefore, rebuke them sharply. There's a reason for it, that they may be sound in the faith. This rebuke is corrective. I think sometimes we think of a rebuke as, you know, putting someone in their place, disciplining them out of the church. Paul says, rebuke these people so that they actually can be restored, so that they will repent and know that they have done wrong and be sound in the faith again. And I think that that provides a good model for us because sometimes we think of a rebuke as like a uh, looking down our noses at people and saying, you know, you're wrong, I'm right. 
And we need to evaluate our own hearts and say, am I rebuking someone just for the sense of superiority here? Or am I seriously and passionately concerned about their spiritual well-being? Am I rebuking them for the intent that they conform their life back to Christ? That's a really interesting question for us to consider. That's really the goal of a rebuke. Not to say, I'm better than you, but to say, hey, let's return to following Jesus together. Our last question here. Titus is on this island full of lazy, lying, evil people, full of false teachers, some of whom claim to know and follow God. And yet, according to verses 1 and 16, if someone professes to know God, what also must be true in their life to validate that claim? Hutch. Yes, if you claim to know God, there must be good works that accompany that. Verse 1 says this, I think you quoted it, Hutch, the knowledge of the truth accords with godliness. Verse 16 says, these people profess to know God, but deny him by their works. This is a theme that appears in James and in 1 John in the coming weeks, and the, the point of it is this, you claim to know God, you're telling me you're a follower of Jesus, that's a good, you know, hey, good for you let me see your life. Let me evaluate the fruits that are in keeping with genuine repentance. Don't just talk a big game. Let me see the actions that give evidence of genuine conversion. And so I wanted us, as we came to the apply section from Titus chapter 1, we know what Crete was like. There were sins that characterized their culture, and yet I wanted us to think from a modern perspective what do you think are some of the ungodly behaviors that, character, that are characteristic of our own culture? Did anything come to mind as you were thinking about that? Crete was like this. Any things that characterize American culture? Yes, Cynthia. Yeah, it sounds like you're almost quoting the verses. Some of those very things are true of our own culture today. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Uh, Brenda. Yeah, disobedient, unbelieving. Yeah, uh, that's a great one. The blatant theft that is characteristic of our own culture. I had a handful. Uh, we seem to be pretty materialistic, self-indulgent. We have a sense of superiority over other people. We're arrogant, I think, in our culture. We are entitled. We think that these things, you know, hey, I deserve this. Treat me a certain way. And what I wanted to do is to think about whether or not we are reflecting in our own lives the sins of our culture. You know, sometimes it's easy to spot in other people, but we need to take a step back and say, am I really all that different from my own culture? Am I a lover of self? Am I arrogant, superior? Am I entitled, materialistic? So I wanted us to think about in the second question, in the third question here, what James and Romans describe what our relationship to the world should actually be like. 
Could someone just summarize maybe the point of those two verses? Jeff. Yeah, we should look like we're well, snippets from each. Uh, James says that pure religion is to keep oneself unstained from the world. Romans 12 says, do not be conformed to the world. I had an extra verse here, 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world. The scriptures are not unclear here. A Christian and the world do not mix. They should not look like each other. A and maybe you hear that, you understand that. Perhaps even as I state that, though, you're wondering, what does that mean not to look like the world? If everyone else is driving a car to work, does that mean I have to take a horse? <laughs> well, no, I think when the Bible talks about the world here, it is describing an ungodly culture, the ungodly values of our culture, a pursuit of things that are temporal rather than eternal. And the Bible is saying, don't look like that. Don't engage in worldliness. Do not be like all of the un other ungodly people around you. And so to evaluate whether or not worldliness has begun to creep into our own lives, I had a series of questions that I hope are just kind of thought-provoking here. Let me just work through these really quickly. In determining how closely we have assimilated ourselves into the world, let me ask you this. Are your best friends unbelievers? Are they the people that you can laugh the easiest with, that you enjoy spending the most amount of time with? Do believers just seem kind of dull and boring to you? If you find yourself having a lot in common with unbelievers, perhaps the world is a bigger part of your life than you thought. How about this? Is your happiness or satisfaction or worth dependent on accumulating the things of this world. You've identified a particular piece of technology or clothing or item that you need and your happiness rises and falls on whether or not you attain that. If so, perhaps the world has a bigger hold on our life than we'd like to think. Who are you trying to impress in this life? Your neighbors, your classmates, your coworkers? Are you conforming your life to listen to the kind of music they do, to talk the way they do, to dress the way they do so that you can fit in? Does it terrify you to think that you might be behind the times? I think these are evidences of worldliness. Do you find yourself hanging on to every word that people in our culture make? You're always keeping up with their lives, thinking, what are they wearing? What are they saying? What is their next step? I'm going to pattern my life after this public figure, this celebrity, this athlete, rather than patterning your life after Christ. How about this? Do you find yourself at events in which there are no other believers present? And you're looking around and you're saying to yourself, okay, I think I would be the only person who's a Christian here. Can I suggest there might be a reason for that? That her, other Christians are purposefully excluding themselves from these types of worldliness? The Bible is not unclear that a Christian and the world should have a very distant relationship from each other. Our love for the world, to put it pretty bluntly, J John says this, if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. We need to evaluate how closely 
we have assimilated ourselves into our culture and realize, whoa, we got to put some distance between us and the world. We should be living for things that are eternal. We should not be following public figures. We should be following Jesus. So on the tales of chapter one, in which Titus and Paul are kind of confronting this ungodly culture, Paul then directs his attention to how Christians should be living. And he identifies four categories of people with specific instructions for them. These categories are older men and women and younger men and women. And you don't have to answer the first question about which category you fall into. That was more reflective. But I think for a lot of us, perhaps we're in both categories, where there are certainly people older than us that we can learn from, and there are certainly people younger than us that we can invest and pour our lives into. So we'll move to that second question then, and we'll just kind of go through older men, older women, younger women, younger men. What are the specific expectations of um, these specific groups? So we can just read straight from the text. What is expected of older men according to Titus chapter 2? Maybe maybe it's too easy. None of you want to answer. So older men. Verse 2, they are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, they're to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good and so train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. Verse 6, urge the younger men to be self controlled. That is the expectations for all of these people, but did you notice an attribute that was repeated in each group of people? I found this kind of interesting. I hear someone whispering it. Oh, yeah, Cindy. Self-control. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. The expected of every person is self-control. I think this is an attribute we don't think about a whole lot, but because of its frequency, I think it's worth at least touching on for just a second here. I think we understand what self-control is. Here's a couple of definitions I came across. Uh, First, self-control is mastering personal desires and passions. Another article I read said that the self-control is the ability to control our thoughts, words, and actions. Self-control is the ability to have all of these desires and passions that are erupting in our heart and to say, no, I'm not going to act on my flesh. I'm not going to act on these things. Self-control is the person who feels this urge to have a witty remark, a sarcastic comment, to perhaps put someone down and they think to themselves before blurting it out, you know what? That wouldn't build someone up. That is untrue. That's not kind. I'm not going to say that. Self-control is the person who feels an action, maybe retaliation to someone else, And before they act on that act of vengeance, they say, you know what? No, God says vengeance is mine. He'll repay. I'm not going to go through with these actions. Self-control looks like thoughts that are running rampant in our minds, perhaps entertaining these ungodly desires or thinking about how we're going to repay someone evil for evil and say, no, no, no. My self-control even pertains to what I'm thinking about. I need to be controlled by the spirit, not my own lusts and passions. And as we mature in our faith, one of the things that is going to be evident, one of the things that Paul says everyone needs to work on is self-control. I asked us 
with question three here to think largely about all of these attributes, self-control just being one of them, but how are you doing at obeying this text of scripture? Again, this is rhetorical, but I want you to think about this here. Paul has clear expectations for older men and women and younger men and women. I'll address those groups, older and younger, briefly here. If you're an older man or woman, would a godly young person look at you and think, wow, you are an example in what it is to be loving and kind, to control your mouth. You are an example to me of how to treat your spouse. If you're a younger person here, are you humble and willing to listen to the instruction of older people? Or have you made the mistake of Rehoboam and just surrounded yourself with your peers and you listen to what they have to say and when older people try to give you instruction, you roll your eyes and go, I don't need you. The expectation of the scriptures is that we are all pouring into each other. We are humble enough to listen to older people. We are obedient enough to invest in younger people, and we're all helping each other grow. We're all helping each other look more like Christ. We do this collectively. This is the expectation of the scriptures. This is true for all of us. So find the category you're in. Again, it could be both. And start living these things out. We read chapter two twice this week, Tuesday and Wednesday. So we've got some more questions from it. Well, we look at verses 5, 8, and 10, and Paul identifies some consequences of ungodly behavior. And even this week, someone pointed this out to me as well. This could be interpreted as, you know, what are maybe the outcomes of godly behavior. So it could go either way. I'm sorry if this was confusing to you. I kind of took the opposite of maybe what the verse was saying here, uh, and you had to read into it just a little bit more. But according to verses 5, 8, and 10, what does Paul identify as a consequence of ungodly behavior? Very generally, what would you say? What's at risk if we live ungodly lives? Joanne? We dishonor God, Claire? Yeah, uh, we might be put to shame. Uh, verse 5 says this, Young women should practice these attributes so that the word of God may not be reviled. Titus should have sound speech so that his opponents cannot condemn him. Bond servants are to conduct themselves in a way that they adorn the doctrine of God. We're reminded that our actions actually have the potential to tarnish Christianity as a whole. We're not unfamiliar with this concept of individuals ruining the image of an organization. Even just this week, I was thinking about, maybe some of you know this, uh, the, the Houston Astros cheating scandal a couple years ago in baseball. In 2017 and 2018, they were using a camera to read the catcher's signs and relaying that information to the batters, and they actually won a World Series in 2017 as they were participating on all this cheating. Now, a lot of those players aren't even on the Astros anymore, but are you guys cheering for the Astros to win the series this year? That reputation might still be tarnished. We, we understand that this organization, it's tainted. They're cheaters. Same with Christianity. We have, through our ungodly behavior, we have a scary opportunity, if I could put it that way, to actually tarnish God's word, to tarnish the gospel. We as individuals have a responsibility to live these lives that are above reproach. Jesus actually describes Christians in Matthew 5 as being two things. You can just call them out. What are they? 
salt and light. Yeah, uh, very graphic illustrations for us. Salt enhances flavor. Light illuminates a room. But according to verse 13, what happens when salt is compromised? It's worthless. Same thing is true of a Christian testimony. When you allow yourself to be compromised, to be worldly, you're showing people around you the new birth that we would claim to have inside of us, not all that potent. We're compromising Christianity as a whole for people that observe us as individuals. And so verse 16 of Matthew chapter 5 identifies a result of our good works. Did anyone get that there? Lisa? Yes. So on the flip side of people seeing our bad works and saying, well, Christianity is a sham, people might have the opportunity to look at our good works and say, the love that I'm seeing in that individual is supernatural. That there is something more going on here than just someone being loving. A commentator pointed out to me, they might conclude, you know what, this is God at work in people. They see our good works and say, whoa, God must be working. So we come to the application section, and I wanted us to think about some of the biggest ways that Christians are bringing reproach to the name of Christ today. How, how are we, collectively as Christians, with ungodly living, actually bringing shame to the name of Jesus Christ? A a any specific thoughts on that? Any examples that came to mind? W what are Christians collectively, where are we dropping the ball? John? Yeah, blending in with the world. I think that's a really interesting one. We are not distinguishable from our culture in some respects. Yeah, any other thoughts? I realize this was a tougher question. Yeah, Cynthia. Lack of self-control? Yeah, we're engaging in things that we shouldn't be. Greg. Yeah, I'm seeing a couple, like, distinct distinction from the world. Yeah, Christine, what were you going to say? Speaking up when we have the opportunity to say something. Yeah. yeah. I was just going to say, um, when amongst ourselves, we can't forgive. Mm. Um, and that's evident to the people around us. Mm. Yeah. It should not be people who hold grudges, who have bitterness festering in their hearts. That's awesome. I thought of this one. Uh, you'll hear a common excuse for why people don't want a church because it's full of hypocrites. Yeah, and we might actually be able to dismiss that by saying, well, all of us are hypocrites at the church, right? Welcome to a place where you'll fit right in. We might be able to say, well, that person is jaded because they just don't want to come to church anyway. But could I just encourage us to think about that for a second? Why might someone say that a church is full of hypocrites? Because perhaps a culture has been created that that church where there are people in leadership positions or all of the members have become untouchable. They are put on a pedestal. And so when it's revealed that they're sinners too, sometimes in graphic, obscene ways, their sin has become apparent to everybody. That leaves people jaded and thinking, wow, these people that I held so high in my mind, they sin too? 
So how could we eliminate that perception? What do, any thoughts on that? I realize this is kind of requiring you to think on the spot here, but, but how do we avoid this, well, the church is full of hypocrites type mentality? Yeah, John. Exactly. Yes, Diane, were you going to add to that? We're all sinners. Yeah, we, we have to be conf- uh, confessing our sins to one another, not allow ourselves to be put on these pedestals and say, actually, I'm pretty good. I don't do wrong. But to be humble and admit, listen, this is a place full of sinners of which I am one. I need the spirit of God inside of me to make me more like Christ. This is not something I've achieved on my own. Closely related to this, I think sometimes Christians are labeled as people who are judgmental, we have somehow gotten this uh, characteristic that Christians are very judgmental people. And I think that this is probably a product of the way that we share the gospel, where we confront people's sins, and people don't like being confronted with their sin. And I'm not saying that we eliminate that, because obviously confronting sin is a necessary component of the gospel. What I am saying is that perhaps in our presentation of the gospel, rather than making it very one-sided and isolating sins and saying it's just the homosexuals and the drug addicts and the people living with their girlfriends that need a savior, we say, I need a savior. I'm in as much need as you are. I know my own sinfulness. I'll fall in line with you and say, yeah, I've got problems. I need Jesus too. Let me just encourage you to maybe adapt the way that you present the gospel just a little bit. Maybe a third one, and this isn't even really Christians, but there are people today who are exploiting the poor and the handicapped under the name of Christ. There are cults who are adopting the label Christian. There are churches who are deceiving people about the power of God and the Holy Spirit that is at work who are making the name of Christ just have a bad name. The world can look at this and see, this is ridiculous. And and so we need to be discerning. We need to be articulate when we talk about what we believe and not just say, yeah, I'm a Christian too, like the other third of America, you know, whatever percentage is that it claims to be a Christian. No, 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 no. Let me articulate to you what it is that I believe. I'm not like these other people who are doing this crazy stuff. We follow Jesus alone. All right, we come to Titus 3. At the beginning of chapter, well, in chapter 3, Paul explains that the good works that he is expecting from the believers in Crete is grounded in good theology. I find this to be a really interesting point. We often don't think of theology as all that exciting. When I mention theology, it's kind of like the heady, academic aspect of Christianity. It can be a little dry, perhaps a little dusty to us. And yet Paul is saying that good theology actually is directly related to good works. In chapter 1, we read the verse already. He says that your knowledge of the truth accords with godliness. So I hope that connection makes sense then as we answer the questions. Good theology 
produces good work. So let's take a second to look at the theology first in verses 4 to 7. What members of the Trinity are involved in our salvation? All of them. Yeah, so let's take a second and just evaluate what each member of the Trinity does. What does the Father do in the plan of salvation? Cindy. Chosen us. Yep. Uh, God the Father is kind of described as being the author or originator of the plan of salvation. Yeah, Claire? Draws us. Yeah, how about the Holy Spirit? What is the Holy Spirit's role in the plan of salvation? Did you say it one more time? Conforms us to Christ. Yeah, the text describes that as uh, washing and regenerating. There's that initial work that the Holy Spirit does, and then there is a continued work of sanctifying us that the Holy Spirit does. And then Christ, this one should be obvious to us. It is through Christ, through the shed blood of Christ, that our sins are forgiven. So all three members of the Trinity are involved in the plan of salvation. At no point did we contribute anything to this. We were on a trajectory towards condemnation, and yet the Father, Son, and Spirit collectively, in their infinite love and goodness, set a plan in motion to redeem us. It took people who were slaves and made them sons. It took people who were formerly enemies of God and adopted them into his family. People who were dead in their trespasses were made alive. People who were filthy in sins are forgiven. This is the work of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And so this is where we come to the practical section. When you have knowledge of what God has truly done for you, do you live a life that says, well, thanks, I'm going to keep doing what I want? No way. That's ridiculous. When you truly understand the theology of God's love and concern and sovereignty in your life and choosing you, drawing you, saving you, you say, my life is yours. I'll I'll, I'll produce these good works. Coming now to the application section. Three times we're told in this chapter and throughout the book, Christians are instructed to devote themselves to good works. Significant theme in Titus expectation for all believers. According to verse 5, do these works save us? You can just call it out. No. This is junior church level stuff. Our good works do not save us. I realize that is obvious, but it's important for us to remember we've not contributed anything to our salvation. It was all God. In fact, people, I was thinking about this even again this morning, people who think that good works do contribute to their salvation really like have a sense of control because they are the determiners of what good works are. They are the determiners of how they get to live their life. There's no submission to Christ in a works-based salvation. It says, I can do some of this. No, 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 no. Christianity is all faith in Jesus Christ. It is admittance. I cannot do this. I realize we got to move quickly, so I won't ask you to raise your hand for these next couple. Philippians 2, 12, and 13 I asked you to list all who are responsible for producing these good works. I realized this was a little confusing verse. It talks about working out your own salvation. But really, the point that I was trying to get across is that there is a human component to good works, and there is God at work inside of us. This phrase, working out your own salvation, 
appears to be, most commentators agree, not that you can contribute to your salvation through works, by no means, but really what it is saying is that there is an initial point of salvation and then a responsibility for, for believers to continue to work out fruits that evidence genuine uh, conversion. There's a human component, and then there is God at work who gives you this will and desire and ability to even act upon those things. So I was hoping that that would encourage you, because to be honest, when I'm confronted with these lists in the scriptures about producing these good works, it can feel heavy. It can feel like a weight on your back. I have to produce all these good works? And every day you're thinking to yourself, well, I guess I have to pick myself up by my bootstraps and love people that I just don't love and be all of these things by my own sweat and blood and tears. And the encouragement of the scriptures is there is certainly a human component. You cannot sit on the couch and become more Christ-like. But the, even the desire to do these things comes from God. And he will give you the ability to act them out. So a humble person wakes up every morning and says, Lord, in and of myself, I cannot produce these good works. This is impossible for me. But with you, with your grace, with your power working through me, I can. And watch God give grace to humble people who admit their reliance on him even for producing these fruits. I, I hope that was encouraging to you. That's encouraging to me because it's heavy trying to do all this on your, in your own strength. God's our aid in this. He gives us the desire and the ability to do these things. All right, we're going to go to Philemon now. Yes, okay. Five minutes for Philemon. In your own words, if you could, could you just explain maybe why Paul wrote this letter to Philemon? Uh, Craig. Yeah, that is one of the themes of Philemon. Uh, not just a reconciliation vertically, but a horizontal reconciliation. We're reconciled to each other. Yeah, what was the uh, maybe occasion or purpose for this letter? Did you know, Joanne? Yep. Yes, as best as we can gather, Onesimus was a runaway slave from Philemon, who one way or another actually sought out Paul, was converted in that process, became a really an asset to Paul, someone who encouraged Paul greatly, was next to him, and then Paul finds himself in a predicament like, well, Onesimus is a runaway slave. Paul's written Colossians and said that slaves need to obey their masters. They need to work for their masters as if they are working for Christ, Paul cannot perpetuate this disobedience here, and so he sends Onesimus back to his master, Philemon, with a letter, encouraging Philemon to respond graciously to this runaway slave. Now, can you imagine the awkwardness of this scenario? Onesimus probably never wants to see Philemon again for fear of some sort of punishment enacted on him. You think Philemon wants to get his hands on Onesimus? Perhaps. You know, how much... Uh, income did Philemon lose while Onesimus, his slave, was gone. And yet here we have, as Craig was drawing our attention to, an example of how Christians need to be restored to one another. So what features of Paul's appeal 
stand out to you? I think there's some really interesting things about how Paul speaks to Philemon, the master. Yeah, Brenda. Well, to me, it was that, that Paul wanted Philemon to uh, actually forgive Onesimus, just like Jesus forgives us. Yeah. He, he really plays on that new relationship they have, not of master to servant, but brothers in Christ. Yeah, any other? Yeah, Hutch. Actually, told Philemon he owes him. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yep, he does. Any other uh, factors of Paul's appeal? There's a couple that just really leapt off the page at me. John? He didn't want him to forgive him because he was being told to forgive him. He wanted him to forgive him from the heart, not from compulsion. Exactly. That was one of the big ones that I identified. The Apostle Paul doesn't, you know, throw his weight around and say, well, I'm the writer of, you know, 12, 13 books of Scripture. You do as I say, Philemon. That's the end of the matter. No, he actually says, Philemon, I'm going to lead you to a right conclusion. I want you to make this decision about how to treat Onesimus, not because of anything I say, but because you've come to that conclusion. Yeah, any other thoughts? Any other facets of this book that were interesting? I'll say one more that I had. Okay, I think one other really interesting thing, and perhaps Hutch was alluding to this, is that Paul assumes responsibility for any debt that Onesimus owes Philemon. He says this in verse 18, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Can you think about perhaps how much debt Onesimus had incurred while he was absent from Philemon, the value that was missing in his absence? And yet Paul says, rather than playing the Christian card and saying, well, Philemon, just take a loss here because we're all related now. He says, if he owes you anything, I'll repay it. What an example of someone who makes peace, not by standing very removed from the situation and just kind of points out the actions that each group should take, but inserts himself right into part of the solution and says, I know that Onesimus could owe you a debt. I'm a third party, but I'll pay it. And commentators were careful to say, doesn't this sound a lot like what Christ did for us? Christ wasn't some uninterested third party who was just saying, well, God and man need to be restored. He says, I know the price. I'll pay it. Paul is mirroring the example of Jesus here. There are several more questions in the application section. We're out of time, but I think one of the awesome things about this book is maybe captured well in what Galatians says about in Christ, there was no longer Jew or Greek, male or female, slave or free, but we're all one in Jesus Christ. The gospel unifies us. It breaks down these social barriers and helps us to realize in Christ, we're one. It changes relationships, and I hope that we can even forgive people. I appreciated Hannah mentioning bitterness and not forgiving people. This is the point of Philemon. Because you know Christ, you know you've been forgiven a huge debt. So forgive in light of the forgiveness you've received. Let's pray. Lord, as we just meditate even on this book of Philemon, we're very appreciative that Christ is the mediator between God and man. That through his shed blood, we can have forgiveness of sins.
we can be restored to fellowship with you. That Jesus paid with his blood the debt that we owed. As we think about that, Lord, give us the grace to love other people. We are so selfish at times. We hang on to hurts that have been done against us. We claim to be forgiven of you, but we can't forgive others. Lord, that should not be true of us. Help us to forgive and to love and bear with one another, to endure and believe all things. Let us truly be like Christ in this respect, and it's in his name we pray.